want to make one quick announcement before we get started in the message today. Uh, we are going to have our Christmas Eve candlelight service. It will be at 5 p.m. on Christmas Eve. Uh, we do it at 5 p.m., hoping that, yeah, you can have time to come here and still have time with your family. We will be partaking of communion that night. We normally do communion the first Sunday of the month. We are going to withhold it until Christmas Eve at the candlelight service. It's always a very special service, and we'd like to invite you to come and be a part of it. So put that on your calendar. You know, there was a day when getting news from one side of the world to the other took a, quite a bit of time. But over the past century, with the, uh, with the technology that has improved, with the uh, sometimes annoying news media, most people know firsthand what it is like to receive unexpected news. And in some cases, the unexpected news has changed the course of human history. For example, in 1941, people gathered around the radio to hear President Roosevelt, his announcement of the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. In November of 1963, our nation received the shocking news that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated while in a parade in Dallas. In July of 1969, people all over the world watched on television as Neil Armstrong became the first man to set his foot on the surface of the moon. And I wonder if you remember how you felt on that horrible Tuesday morning just over 19 years ago as you watched the Twin Towers fall in New York City. I could go on and on, but the fact is that thanks to television and newspapers and the World Wide Web, we all know what it's like to receive shocking news. We know how it feels to receive startling announcements of one kind or another. But as staggering as these examples that I gave you are, each of these announcements is inconsequential when compared to the greatest announcement of all time, and that is the coming of the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's where we're heading this morning in our second sermon in this Christmas series called Adventure. We're going to look at the day that that news came, that the long-awaited Messiah would be finally born, and specifically we are going to look at the young woman who first received this glorious news. So take your Bibles, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll have it up on the screen, and you can follow along with us. This is a text that tells us about when she first heard this announcement. And it was not from the media, nor from the internet. Instead, it came from the angel Gabriel. And speaking of his startling announcements, she learned that not only was the long-awaited Messiah about to come, but that hers was the womb that God would use to bring him into our world. So let's read together Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. I'll be reading today from the New International Version. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? 
The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Before we go any further, I want to kind of describe the setting of this, this particular announcement. It has been six months since the angel Gabriel made an early announce, earlier announcement to the old priest named Zechariah of his eminent fatherhood. Perhaps you remember this part of God's story. It was another time when God used an old couple far beyond childbearing years to miraculously give birth to a son. And in this instance, the son's name would be John the Baptist. Well, verse 27 says that this time Gabriel's announcement was not to an old man in some spectacular temple in Jerusalem, but rather a young girl, a virgin named Mary, living in an obscure little village in Galilee. And his next stop will be to visit her bewildered fiancé named Joseph, who Mary was betrothed to. And next week, we're going to take an intense look at Joseph and his part of this great adventure. Well, Gabriel is one of only two angels in the Bible who are actually named. Another one is Michael. He might be referred to as a super angel. The reason I say that is because he seems to be associated with assignments that required great strength and power, while Gabriel, on the other hand, seems to be God's supreme messenger. He is the one who always brings the great, glorious, and crucial announcements from heaven. And this announcement to Mary is the most important announcement that he has ever or ever will make. Well, Mary lived in Nazareth. It was a small town situated about 70 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Nazareth was located just above the main caravan route between Jerusalem and the cities of Tyre and Sidon two ports located in the northeast coast of Israel. It was a heavily traveled caravan route to serve the needs of the many merchants and travelers who came through. Most of them were Roman soldiers, and most of them were merchants involved in trade. The city was greatly influenced by these outward visitors involved in trade, and this resulted in immorality and corruption being commonplace which further resulted in making Nazareth not the best place in the world to live. And perhaps that's why Nathaniel once said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now tradition says that Gabriel delivered this startling announcement to Mary while she was drawing water from a well. Many theologians believe it happened this way because this would have been the only place where a woman in Nazareth would be alone. After all, it was a woman's job to bring water into the home. And this time, at this time, there was only one source of water in Nazareth. It was a tiny well with room for only one person at a time to enter and draw water. So again, most scholars have concluded that this is where Gabriel came to visit Mary while she was drawing water from that well. As the scripture stated, at the time of Gabriel's announcement, Mary was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. A more popular translation other than the NIV says that she was betrothed to Joseph. Either way, it is important to note that the Jewish tradition of betrothal was far different from our modern concept of engagements today. 
Jewish betrothal was called Kedushin. It lasted for one full year, and it was far more binding than our modern-day engagements are. Kedushin involved sort of a pre-wedding ceremony, after which Mary's property belonged to her future husband. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Why didn't his property become hers? Very male-dominated society back then. Anyway, if Joseph had died during this Kedushin period, Mary would have been, become his legal widow. Only divorce could break Jewish betrothal. And even though they were not yet married, and even though they had not experienced any kind of a physical relationship, during the condition, had either of them been unfaithful to each other, the act would have been deemed as adultery, punishable by death under the old Mosaic law. In fact, one of the purposes of this Kedushin year was to demonstrate the fidelity of both of the partners. It was also a time for their families to exchange gifts and for the couple to get to know each other and to prepare for their wedding ceremony. The ceremony was called the Huppa, H-U-P-P-A. And, and, and a lot of preparation was required because back then, believe it or not, wedding feasts lasted for an entire week. When you hear that, it makes you understand, no wonder they ran out of wine at that wedding feast in Cana where Jesus performed his first miracle of turning the water into wine. In any case, the, to the Jews, Kedushin was a joyous time. And during these betrothal months, Mary and Joseph would have spent a lot of time together working and planning to make their dreams for their future together a reality. So it's with the, with, within this midst of this betrothal year that Gabriel appears to Mary and his first words to her in verse 28 are this, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now this angelic greeting from Gabriel has often been misunderstood and even mistaught. I say this because it is the source of the saying that you've heard, hail Mary, full of grace. However, the most literal Greek translation would be grace, O graced one. I mean, Gabriel did not say, Hail Mary, who is full of grace, to bestow grace on others. A more accurate wording would be, Hail Mary, who has been given much grace. What I'm trying to say to you this morning is that Mary is not the dispenser of divine grace. Only God is. Mary received his grace when she had been chosen to be the mother of the one through whom God's grace would be distributed throughout all mankind. I'm saying that as a, ha as a human being born in sin, Mary needed grace as much as any other sinner separated by God. And she knew this because as she said later on in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And I think it's very important for us to point out something here. Whereas many of our Catholic brothers and sisters overestimate Mary's importance, attributing things to her that are not at all biblical, many Protestants underestimate Mary's importance. Many of us simply offer her cameo appearances on, on Christmas cards and Christmas carols and nativity scenes during this time of the year, but then we tuck her away, kind of like a Christmas ornament, She's out of sight and out of mind until about this same time next year, and then we remember her again. Mary has become a victim of simple neglect. She has been abandoned into some kind of an evangelical limbo. But as we will see this morning, 
Mary played the most crucial role in God's plan. And it would literally be a travesty for us to overlook this and to ignore her. Because there is so much that we can learn about her life, and there is so much that we can learn about the example that she sets, especially at this moment in time. Now Mary was understandably afraid when the angel Gabriel approached her while she was alone drawing water from that well. But once she got over her fear, her response to this amazing news that she would be the vessel that God would use to bring about the miraculous birth, well, let's just say that her response was a whole lot different than her uncle Zachariah. Do you remember what Zachariah said when Gabriel told him that he would be a father? He said, this can't happen, Gabriel. My wife is too old to have children. I'm paraphrasing there. But Mary said, how can this happen since I am a virgin? She's saying, I don't understand. In other words, she didn't question that God could do this. She simply wanted to wonder, she wondered how it was going to happen that a virgin would conceive and give birth to this child. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, God, I believe, invites our honest questions. Remember, Jesus urged us to, to ask and to seek. In fact, I believe that God delights in our questions because it's in the asking when we're acknowledging him as the source of all things. In addition, it's in the asking followed by the waiting for his answer where we fellowship with God. That's where we relate to him. That's why we were created to have a relationship where we can relate to to our Heavenly Father. Well, in verse 35, we see Gabriel's answer to Mary's honest question. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now those with no knowledge of God or no knowledge of the scriptures have suggested that would mean the Holy Spirit would have had to have a physical relationship with Mary. But of course we know that nothing is further from the truth. The Greek used here is similar to the wording in the creation account found in the book of Genesis. In essence, Gabriel answered her question by saying, Mary, in the same way that God said, let there be light, and there was light, he will say, let my son's fetus be in your womb, and it will happen. And here's something, that, that I, that, something else that I'm not sure that we ever take the time to ponder. Why do you think God chose Mary in the first place? I am certain that there were other options out there. Why did he pick her to play this crucial role in his great adventure? Why would he bestow upon her the honor of serving as the mother to the Messiah? Well, of course, we don't know the mind of God. His ways are higher than our ways. We can't understand or know the complete rationale behind this decision that he made. But I believe in his written word, God tells us things about Mary that offers us at least a partial answer to that question. It shows us three reasons why she may have been selected. And in fact, these are three prerequisites that I believe apply to anyone that God is going to use to fulfill his purposes and who are willing to join him in his great adventure of doing his will. So we're gonna look at them this morning as a way for all of us to take note 
and to hopefully follow. And first, I believe Mary was chosen because Mary had the right attitude about herself. I'm referring to the fact that Mary was humble. I mean, she didn't believe she deserved this honor that God had bestowed on her in any way. In fact, Luke tells us that she was troubled by the fact that Gabriel said to her that she was highly favored. Didn't seem right to her. It didn't connect. It didn't make sense. She thought, why would I be highly favored? You must have the wrong Mary. Perhaps you're at the wrong well. Maybe God sent you to find someone else. Maybe up the next town, further up the uh, trade route. And we continually see Mary's humility expressed in her responses in verses 46 through 55. We didn't read this, but we're going to read it here in a second. These verses are called Mary's song. They are also referred to as a theological term, the magnificent, not C-A-N-T, C-A-T, magnificent. So I want to look at these verses, uh, verses 46 through 55 in your Bibles. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm and scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now, as we read through Mary's song, we see that she never even hinted at bragging about herself. God is the only one in these verses that is magnified. And in my mind, this is the one thing that we need to take away from this study in her part of this adventure because it shows how much importance God places on the attitude of humility. In fact, it is a principle that is seen all over the advent of Jesus, found in God's selection of the place and even the people that he used in this chapter of his story. Think about it. An obscure village, a little village by the name of Nazareth, and a poor working class couple like Joseph and Mary. I believe that it clearly illustrates the reversal of our very human tendency and ideas about greatness and smallness, about significance and, and insignificance, because we are wrong on this all the time. I believe the best way to describe it is in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, through 29. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. See, it's not the boasters or the proud who have the last word in God's kingdom. Arrogance and power are totally out of place there. God does not exalt those who think of themselves as, as having arrived, but rather he exalts the humble. People who hunger and thirst for his righteousness and realize how much they need him in their life. The fact is, in the kingdom of God, humility is essential. 
And here's the reality of that statement. A person can't even become a Christian until which time they humbly admit their need for a Savior. And it's within their humility that they confess their sins and they ask Lord, the Lord to forgive them. And then, and then even after we become Christians, humility becomes a necessity. Why? Because God will not use us unless we bow to his will. God will not use us until we humbly place our lives at his disposal in just the way that Mary did. The plain fact is that God chooses and uses humble people, people who will display his glory and not their own glory. In Isaiah 57, 15, God says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. In Isaiah 66, 2, God says, this is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Referring to these scriptures and other ones, Jerry Bridges writes this, the promises of God toward the truly humble are almost breathtaking. The infinitely high and lofty one who lives forever promises to dwell with them, to esteem them, to give them grace, to lift them up, and to exalt them. The truth is, in order for us to be useful in God's great kingdom, we must humble ourselves. Because when we do this, we learn, as Mary did, that with God, absolutely nothing is impossible. And High Point Assembly, I want you to understand, this is not just an angelic proclamation. This is a positive reality. With God, it was possible for an old man and an old woman named Elizabeth and Zechariah to, to conceive and to bear a son, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to the Son of God. With God, it was possible for a, a peasant girl, a virgin, to give birth to a baby, Jesus, who was the Son of God, who is the Savior of the world. I mean, that when a poor little peasant teenager named Mary humbly said to Gabriel, may your word be fulfilled, well then, Christmas came into the world. And with God, sinful people like you and I can find redemption in Christ Jesus have a new life. We can have an abundant, meaningful, incredibly significant kind of a life because with God, nothing is impossible. In fact, think about that for a minute. If God could use the life of a, of a humble, young peasant girl, then he can use any life, including yours and including the guy standing before you. As Francis of Assisi once said, if God can use me, he can use anyone. Well, what would happen if we all humbled ourselves and allowed God to use us in our life? Wouldn't it be exciting to find that out in the middle of this Advent season of 2020? Well, the second reason that I believe God chose Mary was because Mary had the right attitude about the scriptures. Mary cherished God's written word. She treasured its wisdom. And this is seen in the fact that in the lyrics of her impromptu Song of Christmas, Mary's song, that it contains at least 15 direct quotes from the Old Testament. I mean, Mary obviously knew her Bible, and she knew it well. And you must understand how impressive this is. Because in those days, printed scriptures were a luxury. 
So peasants like Mary would not have had actual written copies of God's word. This means she would have had to have memorized Old Testament scripture as her parents taught them to her over the years. And Mary's song proves that that's exactly what happened. She had truly hidden God's word in her heart. Now you may remember the next part of this great adventure. Mary went to visit her uncle Zachariah and her aunt Elizabeth. And I am sure that during her four-day journey, she pondered Gabriel's startling announcement. And as she did, I am certain that she started to review the scriptures in her mind, especially the messianic prophecies that she had learned as a child. And the more she began to remember those prophecies, the more fear, the fear diminished, and I believe the more the excitement grew in her heart. In any case, the biblical record of the, the nativity story clearly shows us something of great importance. Mary was fully informed by the very heart and the mind of God as expressed through his written word. Its truth was precious to her. She could say with the psalmist in chapter 119, verse 97, Oh God, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. But she didn't just memorize it and meditate it. She cherished it. She cherished it as the precious gift that it was. She believed in the promises of God's word, even when others around her did not. And the sad fact is, most of the people in that day didn't believe. In prior centuries, God had sent out prophet after prophet, uh, describing everything from telling people when the Messiah would be born, describing everything from, from where he would be born and how he would die. And at one time, the Hebrew people like Mary had read those Messianic prophecies in Scripture, and they held on to them tightly. For a few generations, the people of this nation believed in and longed for the fulfillment of God's promise. They eagerly anticipated the arrival of their deliverer. But years passed, and decades passed. Four centuries had passed, and nothing happened. There were no visions. There were no prophecies. There were no miracles. There was silence. And some grew tired of waiting, and so they gave up, erroneously concluding that God had forsaken them. Some tried to bring about their own deliverance through religious or political reform, while others just got simply caught up in day-to-day -day life. You know what I'm talking about. They had jobs to do. They had bills to pay. They had families to raise. In her book, Three Wise Women, author Kristen Ditchfield writes this, most Jewish people were too busy for what must have seemed like fairy tales or wishful thinking. Nothing even remotely miraculous had ever happened in their lifetime or their parents' lifetime or grandparents' or great-grandparents' or great-great-grandparents' lifetime. Because of this, it was hard for them to believe the supernatural stories of the Old Testament. Somehow, it just didn't seem real. So the majority of the people in Mary's day had given up, and they no longer cherished God's word. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? But a remnant still believed, and that remnant remained faithful. They patiently watched, and they waited for the fulfillment of God's written promise, and Mary was one of them. She trusted God. 
She believed in his word. She realized, I will be the virgin prophesied by Isaiah. I'll bear the Messiah promised to the first humans way back in Genesis 3.15 that we studied last week. And as I said, I think this is one reason why God chose Mary for this astounding privilege. You see, when it comes to important assignments, God uses people who believe in his promises and who trust in them and who live by them. Let me put it this way. When it comes to selecting people to do God's will, God calls the prepared. He calls the soldiers who in Ephesians chapter 6 put on the full armor of God, especially the sword of the Spirit, which is identified as the Word of God. During World War II, the 101st Airborne Division was a group of soldiers that were used greatly. Time and time again, when an important job needed to be done, they were sent out. Repeatedly, they were selected among other units. Why was that? Well, the simple answer is that they were great soldiers. And they were great soldiers because they were prepared for battle. And they were prepared for battle because they had listened to their trainers in boot camp. They heeded the instructions of their leaders. They obeyed orders. They cherished their leaders' verbal guidance. Well, I believe that that exact, exact same principle applies to the kingdom of God. When an important task needs to be accomplished, God calls on those soldiers who are prepared. And the best way to prepare for God's individual call to us is to cherish his word and to know it well, just like Mary did. As I inferred last week, God calls people who live by what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where it says, study to show yourself to God as one approved a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. For example, when it comes to someone leading someone to faith in Christ, God calls individuals who know how to use the scriptures found in the book of Romans, referred to as the Romans Road. When it comes to selecting a Christian to help someone who is lonely or afraid, God will pick someone who has embraced the truth found in the book of Joshua, chapter 1 where God says, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. When it comes to choosing someone to counsel a couple whose marriage is in trouble, God will choose someone who understands and embraces the teachings of Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When it comes to picking someone to help a Christian who has questions about Jesus' return, God will choose a believer who, who understands Jesus' words from John chapter 14 where he said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I, I would have told you. I'm going there, he said, to prepare a place for you. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me. That where I am, you can be as well. So let me ask you, is God using you much these days? Have you been given any exciting assignments lately? I mean, have you found yourself ever in the middle of a divine appointment? I ask those questions knowing fully well that COVID has literally put a stop to a whole lot of things, including many facets to face-to-face -face ministry. 
And so I've decided that we can either lament over this or we can use this valuable time to prepare us to be used when some of these restrictions are lifted. And the best way to do that is to take all this extra time we find that we have by ourselves and alone time and to get into God's Word and study it on our own. Because if you don't cherish God's Word or you don't know His Word and you don't live by His Word, how can you expect to be used by God to fulfill His great adventure? Well, that leads me, leads me to my third and final point. Yes, Mary was chosen because she had the right attitude about herself. And yes, Mary was chosen because she had the right attitude about, about God's Word. But I also believe Mary was chosen because she had the right attitude about God's will. Her mindset was such that she said yes to God's will for her life. She was completely receptive to his commands, even if it meant that she would endure difficulty. If you look back at verses 31 through 37, when Gabriel delivers his message to her from God, he tells Mary that she will be mo the mother of the long-awaited Messiah. And he, and he patiently answers her question as to how this could happen. He says, for no word from God will ever fail. Another translation, a more, po more popular one is, nothing is impossible with God. Then in verse 38, Mary gives her answer. She said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. In other words, yes, if this is God's will for my life, I am the Lord's servant, so may it be unto me as you have stated. And I don't want us to trivialize, trivialize this answer because you need to understand this was an incredibly courageous thing for Mary to do and to say. This is one gutsy teenager we're talking about here. No doubt Mary must have been torn between two conflicting thoughts while considering the implications of Gabriel's announcement. First, like any Jewish woman of her day, she surely considered it an incredible honor to have been chosen to be the mother of the Messiah, the mother of Jesus. I mean, on one hand, Mary was surely thrilled with this idea, this news. Think about it. She had been chosen among all women for this particular privilege. But on the other hand, Mary knew that to accept this privilege, that it could bring with it great personal pain and hardship. Joseph would have the legal right now to divorce her. Many parents and her parents and her family and even her friends would probably reject her. At least her reputation would be ruined in the eyes of people within that community. And by the way, the scriptures record the fact that she was indeed labeled in the wrong way due to her pregnancy carrying the Son of God. And according to the religious laws in her culture in that day, Mary could have faced stoning. She could have been killed. As author Christian Ditchfield writes, it would not be easy to whom much is given, much is required. When it became evident that Mary had been pregnant long before her wedding day, she would endure nasty rumors snide comments and scornful looks. But having her name dragged through the mud, her reputation ruined, 
This was nothing compared to the agony she would experience as the mother of the man born to die for the sins of the world. This was one son who would not grow up to take over the family's business, settle down with a sweet girl, and fill his mother's arms with adorable grandchildren. As Simeon told her in the temple, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul as well. You know, we are living in very treacherous and dangerous days for Christians in many parts of the world because you can be killed by admitting that you were a follower of Jesus Christ. In China, people are regularly imprisoned for attending churches that aren't supposed to exist. In the Middle East, Christians are beheaded by radical Muslim groups. In India, Christians have been locked into their churches and then the churches have been lit on fire and they've been incinerated with their building. And I can go on and on, but these sorrowful events should remind us that when we are obedient to Jesus, there can be suffering. And make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen, in the United States of America, there is and will continue to be increased persecution and separation for those of us who align ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's on its way, and it will be coming, and you had better be prepared for it. So living a life for Jesus is not always going to be easy, and there will be challenges. Saying yes to his will often means suffering on our own, often means entering into suffering of others as we bear their burdens along with them. This is perhaps one of the main reasons why we should learn to be like Mary. I mean, look at her courageous, her courageous reply. She said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. In other words, in spite of personal risk, in spite of personal suffering, Mary said, here I am. No matter what the cost, use me, Lord. I am yours. I recently read an old story of an illiterate man who was converted through the work of the Salvation Army. After his conversion, he liked to go and regularly work at the Salvation Army. He went there to serve. And one day he came home a bit depressed and his wife said, what's the matter? He said, well, I just noticed that all the people at the Salvation Army wear a red sweater. And I don't have a red sweater. And she said, well, honey, I can fix that. She said, I'll knit you one. So she knitted him a red sweater. And the next Sunday after he arrived home, he still wasn't happy, so his wife said, what's wrong this time? He said, I just noticed that the red sweaters that they wear at the Salvation Army all have yellow writing on them. Now, they were both illiterate. They both couldn't read. But she said, don't worry about it. I'll embroider some writing on your sweater for you. She had no idea what the yellow, yellow writing on the, the Salvation Army sweaters read. Couldn't read. So she saw a sign in a store window that was kind of opposite of their home. And she proceeded to embroider the words on the sign at that store onto her husband's sweater. He came back the next Sunday and she asked, did they like your sweater? He said, did they like my sweater? They love my sweater. Some of them said they like my sweater better than theirs. And what neither of them understood is that the sign that she had copied from the store said, this business is under new management. 
No wonder that sweater was such a hit to the people who had experienced God's grace at the Salvation Army because it's literally what it means to become a believer in Jesus Christ. When we give our lives to God, we should put a sign on us somewhere that says, this business, this life, hey, it's under new management. I don't run it anymore. God's the CEO. And in spite of any suffering that I might endure, I will follow God's leading. Well, Mary understood this principle of God's kingdom work. I want to share one more thing that Kristen Ditchfield wrote. She said, though she was only a teenager, barely more than a child, Mary somehow recognized the blessings and rewards of unconditional obedience. She was a truly wise woman, a woman with a willing heart. Listen, if you are a bored Christian today, either in this building or watching online, there's something that I need to say to you this morning. Do you know the kind of people God uses to do amazing things? Like ministering to the poor and the destitute on the streets of Calcutta, like Mother Teresa did? Or serving as one of the most brilliant Christian apologists of his day, like Ravi Zacharias did? Or being the most effective evangelist of his day, like Billy Graham did? Well, those are three famous people that we know well and who served the Lord well. But what about the others that you know absolutely nothing of? They receive no press, no acknowledgement, no kudos. I'm talking about many people who serve to help our children understand how much God loves them every Sunday morning in children's church. Like those who take meals and groceries to our shut-ins who can't get out on their own. Like those who, through our sports ministry, find someone who, is, who plays softball or volleyball or basketball, befriends them, and then ultimately leads them into a relationship with Jesus. Like those who minister to people who come on Friday nights to celebrate recovery through discipleship classes, and not just that, but, but by investing personal time in their lives. Do you know what kind of people God uses to do wonderful things like that? Fulfilling things like that? exciting things like that. He uses willing people. But I fear that too many Christians in the 21st century, we've just simply gotten too comfortable. We have. And we've come up with a long list of tired excuses that just do nothing but destroy our willingness. We're so busy. We don't have time to serve in any way, shape, or form. Let me ask you this morning, are you willing to follow Mary's example in all of this? Are you ready and willing for God to use you to do something amazing? If not, are you willing to be made willing? There's a good question. Mary's adventure certainly shows us a clear example of someone trusting God even when she didn't have all the answers, even when she didn't have all things figured out. Here's the truth. You don't need all the answers to be used by God. You will never receive all of the answers to be used by God. 
But you have to understand, you don't need them because you are working for the creator of the universe who has all the resources and the answers that you will ever need at his and your disposal during times of fear, during times of conflict, during times of doubt. You will never be used by God if you're one of those people that has to have all your ducks lined up in a perfect row. You'll never be used by him. There is always risk. There is always challenges. There will always be obstacles whenever you do God's work and being used by him. But every one of them is presented to build your faith and to increase your trust in your Lord and Savior. So I would propose to you this morning to be like old Peter as I tell you this profound truth. If you are ever going to get, if you are ever going to walk on the water, you got to step out of the boat first. You, you got to sometimes step out of that comfort zone that you're in. It's all cozy and warm and you're happy there. Yeah, that's great. I love your happiness. But every once in a while, you got to step out and do something that doesn't feel so comfortable. And the reason it doesn't feel so comfortable is because you've never been there before. Everything is uncomfortable until you experience it. And once you've experienced it, guess what? It isn't uncomfortable anymore. And then you go to the next step and the next step and God will use you in great ways. If you're ever going to be a part of God's great adventure, you got to step out into uncharted territory because it is there that he will show you who is in charge. And furthermore, it is there, and I can't overestimate this enough, it is there where you will truly find the fulfillment that has been lacking in your life. I've said this before, before I was in ministry, I was in sales and I wasn't serving the Lord. And all I cared about was money. And it, as in the sales department, you can make lots of money if you're a hustler. If you get out and you move and you call on your accounts regularly, that's what I did. I was always living to make the bonus because the bonus was a nice check that I could do whatever I wanted to do with. I remember the, the, the thrill I used to get when I'd get those bonus checks. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, I get it. Mm. But I got to tell you something. I have never felt fulfillment that I have felt in being used by God in ministry. There has been nothing that is compared. No amount of money, no car, no home, no clothing, no anything that we all love to have in our world. Nothing has exceeded the thrill and the joy and the fulfillment that I have received in my time being used by God. Liz, will you come forward? Or, or Anthony, I'm sorry. Help me to close this down. You don't look like Liz. You know, and stand to your feet. Would you please stand to your feet? In a few weeks, we are going to be entering a new year. And we really don't know what 2021 is going to look like. Early on, it's going to look a lot like 2020. I think we're already realizing that. But at some point, things are going to start loosening up a bit. They are. COVID restrictions will eventually be lightened and eventually lifted after people start getting their injections. And we'll be able to go back to doing many of the things that relates to our personal lives as well as our ministry. And so I want to ask you, High Point, would you make this a matter of prayer to seek out ways that you can be used by God in this coming year? And if you don't feel like you can pray that kind of prayer yet, then would you pray that God would make you willing to pray that kind of prayer? 
Because here's the truth, we were all created for a purpose, and that first purpose is to know Jesus, to turn our lives over to him, to receive salvation, to serve him as Lord and Savior. And secondly, it is being used in serving the Lord, finding a part to play in God's great adventure. And please don't forget this, though I'm saying God's great adventure, when you participate in it, it becomes your great adventure as well. And if you're here today, or you're watching online, and your adventure hasn't started yet, well, it's because you've never given your life to Jesus. And this, that's where it all begins. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and while I'm praying, you just pray a simple prayer yourself of acknowledging that Jesus is Lord and asking forgiveness for your sin. When you pray that simple prayer of belief and confession of your sin, the Bible says that he is faithful to save you, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And you become, as the Bible says, a new creation. And it is within that newness that God can and will use you to open up doors to be a part of his adventure, which will in turn be the greatest adventure of your life. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, as always, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this incredible example of a young teenager named Mary who put it all on the line for you. She trusted in you completely. And even though she didn't understand all the ins and outs, you used her. And because of it, we have now received the salvation that you brought to us. If Mary had said no, where would we be? Would you have gone on to someone else? We don't know that. But Lord, we thank you that she was willing. And God, my heart's cry is that every one of us who are part of this, this body of believers, and those who are watching online who might not even be a part of us, that, that our heart's cry would be, Lord, we want to be used by you as well. I pray that you would remove those obstacles in our mind and our heart that we always default on that makes us say no, that causes us to step back, that causes us to make a separation between you and us because we feel like if we get any closer, you're going to put us into something that maybe we may fear. And as we saw with Mary, fear is a real thing. But Lord, once you show us, the fear subsides. And we realize at that point in time that we are in your will and we are doing what you've called us to do. And it becomes natural and it becomes productive and we are then fulfilled. So God, I pray that we would all pray a prayer of Jesus, use me. Use me in any way you see fit. And more importantly, make me a willing vessel to being willing to be used by you. That God, I won't make up any more excuses. I won't come up with any more reasons why I can't do this and I'll just say, yep, I'm gonna do it now and you're gonna have to strengthen me to do it and he will, because that's what he promises. And Father, for those who are here watching today that don't know you and they wanna start on their new adventure, I pray that they would have the courage to ask for your forgiveness, to acknowledge you as the Lord of all, the way to the Father, the way to eternal life. They would confess their sins. They would receive you as Lord and Savior. And then, Father, that they would allow your Holy Spirit to do a work in them 
to come alongside of us at this church to encourage them in their walk with you and that they too would be used doing the kingdom work that you've called each and every one of us to do. So Lord, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for this time of reflection on an incredibly gutsy teenager. If we had half the guts she had, our world would be a different place. So my prayer is that you'll make us gutsy too. And we don't have to be teenagers to be gutsy. We can be at any age in our life and you can use us. So God, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, that we would speak words of life, not words of defeat, that we would talk about your greatness to others, we would tell them what the glory of, of serving Jesus is all about. And I ask that people would sense your love and your joy in our hearts in such a way that they would be attracted to that, because they are, because it's so unusual in our world today. So let us be glowing lights in a dark world, particularly during this season where there are lights all around us. Let us shine brighter than them all, I pray. And God, I ask uh, finally that you would keep us all safe, keep us safe from COVID, keep us safe from sicknesses, illnesses, diseases that may befall us. Keep us safe from accidents till we can gather together again and worship you in spirit and in truth. I thank you for your presence here today, Holy Spirit. I thank you that you're doing a work in our hearts, in our minds, in the way we go about doing business with you and in the fact that we're going to open up our hearts to allow us to do the things you've asked us to do, That whereas in the past maybe we've backed off. So thank you for that. And I ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today. God bless you.